Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless Possible. Welcome to Shameless, the celebrity and pop culture podcast for smart women who really, really love dumb stuff. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne journalists Zara McDonald and Michelle Andrews. I'm laughing because I spelt Melbourne, Melbourne. Melbourne. It's been a long day. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, the Bachelorette finale that fell just a little bit flat, the sudden controversy around Emily Ratajkowski's Australian visit, and the mounting pressure for young people to make something of their weekends. But first, Mish, how has your week been? It has been the most disastrous week and it's all my own fault. It's a tiny bit hyperbolic. It's all my own fault because I'm on holiday next week. So when you guys are listening to this, I'll be somewhere in Bali getting some sun. I was going to say how's the humble brag, but it was just a blatant brag. It was just a blatant brag. Uh, and because of that, when you're freelance and you work for yourself, you don't get paid holiday leave. So my mentality for the past fortnight has been I've got to do as much work as I can now so I can make up and not feel guilty for not earning mm. money for a full week. And I have slammed myself into the ground, like absolutely slammed myself. I've been waking up most mornings at 4am, sometimes 5am, which is considered a good morning at the Mm. moment. And I'm just, I'm actually exhausted. I think I'm so sleep deprived, which means this will be a very interesting episode. This will be a rollicking time. I don't think I'll be able to censor myself really, but I did say something interesting on the drive here. I saw a guy who's having a worse week than I am clearly using an electric razor to shave his beard while driving. Oh, and it was what? 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And there was hair going everywhere. Jesus. Just beard hair all over his white t-shirt, clearly on his way to somewhere where he needs to have a trim beard. Hair is particularly hard to get off the skin too and the shirt. Isn't that weird? Like electric razor. Anything else you consume this week that you like just to get this back on track? Um, I have been really enjoying actually our ex-boss, Lee Campbell mm. uh, from Mamma Mia, has published a really tear-jerking, emotional, insightful blog series into her struggle with infertility. Yes. And it's called Treading Water. And I love it because I haven't gone to that stage of my life yet where I'll be trying for children. However, Lee's insights and her words are really raw and candid. And I feel like I understand the plight of infertility more now and I have more insight into that experience. And I just really admire her bravery in putting that series out. Yeah, I agree. And there's something really important about not just uh, older women, and I say that, you know, quote unquote, but younger people reading about that experience to not only to arm themselves with facts and experience, but also to arm themselves with compassion for eventually when it does happen either to them or the women around them. I think it's often a case of when you get to the point of having kids, it'll sort of sneaks up on you like a tsunami and not not many young women are armed with those kinds of skills. So I agree. It was a really beautiful sort of snappy blog post series. I also like that she did it in such short, sharp bursts. So each post was probably 300 words and there's probably 12 of them, but it gives you a really short and cutting glimpse into what that experience is like. And I think it's really beautiful. So we'll obviously put that in the show notes. What was your week like and what have you been consuming? Not much, I have to say. I haven't been consuming much just because I have also been a little bit busy and I can't pretend that I've consumed anything when I really haven't. Mm. It's actually funny when I think about how I'm going to answer this question because I look back on the 
the week that was and I'm not sure where all my time went because it's not like I have anything to show for it apart from, you know, just working. I did start a podcast series called Believed, which is an in-depth look at the Larry Nasser scandal that sort of hit US oh, gymnastics. gymnastics. Yes, exactly. So this was timed really well with a piece, uh, an in-depth piece on the cut about how Larry Nasser was able to abuse hundreds of young gymnasts uh, in, in America, Olympic level gymnasts, because he was the team doctor. It is so sad. I've only listened to the first episode, but it is so well produced um, and a really nuanced, sensitive look at that time. I also would recommend the piece on the cut, although it's very long. So give yourself some time. I would like to pre-recommend something that I have not even looked at that I feel like we'll be recommending next week. Oh, this is very rogue. Totally rogue, but I feel like it's um, the sense of the episode. The Bold Type. Because everybody, I feel like we have a need to recommend that on behalf of everybody else that's recommended it to us. We released our first recommendations newsletter, which I think we need to clarify, is less of a recommendations newsletter and more of a bit of a column mixed with recommendations, mixed with whatever we're feeling. We've accidentally framed it as purely recommendations, but it was never really meant to be like that. No, it's going to be basically a weekly column from us dropping into your inbox, but... We sent our first one out and we did get good feedback, but the main piece of negative feedback was where the fuck is the bold type and so, why are you not watching so it? So the bold type, from my understanding, from my extensive Googling, is a, a television show on Stan and it's about... Was it on Stan? I don't have Stan. God, I hope I haven't just mucked that up. I'm going to Google this while you talk. Yeah. Keep going. And it's about the inner workings of a magazine from... Oh, that is interesting. Isn't it? Particularly... The name now makes sense. Damn, it's on stand. It is on stand. Okay. You can get a free trial and smash all the episodes out. 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. There you go. So I imagine we'll be having a conversation about this next episode. I'll download it while I'm in Bali. Looks like I'm signing up for Stan. Obviously, though, apart from the bold type, people are talking about The Bachelorette this week. Another B word. Another B show. Wow, I'm tired. (laughs) Bad jokes left, right and centre. They were. It's probably the most horrific season of The Bachelorette we've ever had. Slash Bachelor. It is... It has been an absolute train wreck. I don't care what anyone says. Is that how you're going to package it? Yeah. A train wreck? A train wreck. I think it is the most boring, vanilla, lackluster season of... They didn't even take her to another country for the finale. The finale was in the Northern Territory. No offence if you're listening from the Northern Territory. Beautiful place. It actually is a beautiful place that not enough Australians get to. That being said... When everybody else is getting flown to Fiji and New Caledonia, I don't think anyone's ever been flown to New Caledonia. But regardless, it's overseas. So, it's just so budget. It is budget. I. It's not surprising that The Bachelorette has always been a little more budget than The Bachelor. It's interesting to me that they had the foresight to see perhaps the, the, the drop in ratings and maybe they weren't able to sell it in for as much as they are used to. And when I say sell it in, get sponsors on board for the same amount of money that they're used to. Well, it wouldn't surprise me. Because people weren't excited about Ellie being The Bachelorette before the show had been aired or filmed. It's so funny because every other season of The Bachelor, I'm trying to dodge spoilers left, right and centre. And on the day of the finale, it's me and my girlfriend sitting around a television watching it together. This season had nothing to it. I couldn't care less. I watched maybe a couple of episodes and then tuned out because what was there to watch or be interested in anyway. It just seemed like it completely lost that spirit that means that people tuned in. It lost that grit that... What do you think that is, though? I mean, we can talk broadly about how it didn't live up to what it usually is, how perhaps it felt like to me they sped through the season as fast as they could. But what do you mean by spirit or grit? I think I've been looking into this a little bit. I do have a theory. I think a lot of it boils down to Warner Brothers now being the production team Mm. and the company behind the show. So for the first three seasons, Endemol Shine, which is the same production company behind shows that are loved by Australians like MasterChef, Mm. they headed up the production for The Bachelor and they were the ones to bring us People like Tim Robards, Sam Wood. Who was the Oh, Blake Garvey. We'll, we'll excuse him for that one. But then what happened with Warner Brothers coming on is we saw this shift away from original people to recycled contestants from other seasons. Mm. And then we saw them bring in celebrities like Sophie Monk and the Honey Badger and so on and so forth. It's 
it's really gone down a very Americanized path with Warner Brothers, I feel. And we've seen a whole lot of backstage production work, which I really don't like either. You know, like breaking the fourth wall with the producers coming forward into the show. Yeah, babe, 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 babe from last season <laughs> when she was running after that contestant. See, that feels like two minutes ago and yet we've had an, an entire season of The Bachelorette since. It feels like a tired formula. And that's really interesting to me because the US version has been able to produce more than 20 seasons worth of, of Bachelor without people feeling like it's tired. I I feel like there's less of a chance now that the show is going to get people applying that just want to give it a shot as a kind of adventure because I think there's a really distinct formula when it comes to what happens to successful Bachelor contestants, which is they gain a sizable media following, they give up their jobs and they become full-time influencers for six to 12 months. And I think it's very clear that most people applying now are very happy with that being the outcome. When you look back to Tim Robard's season and even the couple that came after that, there were people in there that were after fame. In fact, I imagine all of them were happy for fame to be a byproduct of the experience, but some were more genuine people. I agree with that. I think it's sad, and I know it sounds like we're talking about some type of <laughs> genuine hobby or interest. I know that it's The Bachelorette and The Bachelor do and it's it's just bullshit at the end of the day. However, I do feel sad because I feel like this is something that I've spoken about with my girlfriends on podcasts on yeah. it's I've read so many stories about this. This is like a cultural phenomenon for so many women in Australia and it has completely lost its relevancy in the last couple of months and I'm angry at Channel 10 because I think they've let it slip through their fingers. They could have built something really funny and irreverent and culturally on point. And they've just missed the mark, not only through being politically incorrect, but also being downright offensive with queer baiting and totally. lack of cultural diversity. How many black contestants or Asian contestants were on the show in total this year? I think you'd find it would be close to zero. I think it also comes down to Channel 10 promising one thing and producing another. And when we say Channel 10, I guess we're largely talking about Channel 10 and Warner Brothers. But they're promising us a love story. That's what they sell it to us as. And that's their prerogative to frame it in a way that they like. But you cannot possibly promise us one thing and produce another, which is a very lackluster almost unbelievable love story that we're not that invested in. Yeah, and I feel like the American audience is more open to that saccharine, sensationalised narrative. Australians aren't. We no. don't want sensationalised things. They don't work well here. Well, I don't think the US ever promised to be something that it wasn't. Mm. I think it sort of always sold itself on that, that outrageous drama that you couldn't relate to, but I think that was the beauty of it. The idea behind the Australian Bachelor or Bachelorette is that we're kind of meant to relate to them and be invested in them, and suddenly they've lost us by trying to be this weird hybrid of Australia and, and US mm. without the sex. Mm. My only wish for next year is that Todd is the Bachelor. He was the only beacon of light to come out of this year of the Bachelor franchise, apart from maybe Brooke and Sophie. My sister made a uh, funny observation as we were watching the last sort of 20 minutes or so, and we noticed as he was getting dressed, you know, he was in the dark suits, obviously, he had lost it, and he... <laughs> Naturally. I love that you're just saying that like everyone listening to this would know that, oh, yeah, of course, we know exactly what she's talking about. Everybody listening to this would know that the person in the light suit or the lap dress wins. Continue. Anyway, we were noticed that he had a nose ring in. And we thought, that's really interesting that they've put a nose ring. And the minute he put the nose ring in, my sister Mietta said that is nail in the coffin number two because this is, I don't know if this is too like long a bow to draw, but I thought it was quite funny. She said, this is their way of showing that he has a little bit too much edge, that he's not like the straight edge guy that's going to win her heart. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting because I thought the nose ring is very prominent. Maybe they want him to have someone more clean cut, even though Tate wasn't that clean cut. Do you think that's a, a good theory? No. I just all. think he just didn't win. There was nothing to do with the nose ring. He should ditch if the nose ring. I think if he was going to win, the nose ring wouldn't have been there. Todd, if you're listening, ditch the nose ring. You're perfect without it. I would have loved to have known from producers, if you're listening, <laughs> if you would have let him walk down that tree-lined wooden catwalk with catwalk. a nose ring. It is a catwalk, is it not? I have no idea what to call it. All I can say is one of my girlfriends messaged me. I didn't even watch the finale, but she sent a photo of the background when they were when Ali was kind of breaking one guy's heart and making another guy's life and the background looked like a sewage dump it wasn't a good backdrop it looked like one of those sort of swamp like yes it looked like a swamp yeah I wonder if they're gonna last what do you think no god no what they're not gonna last do you yeah, think they're gonna I feel last? terrible saying that because I always feel bad 
I don't think so. No, because he just he didn't he didn't seem to be invested. And maybe maybe he's not good on TV. Maybe that's not really his shtick. But it just didn't seem to me like he was really in love with her. I think Ellie might be that girlfriend who continually chooses the wrong guy. Like has the option between the two and time after time will go for the one guy who's emotionally not invested, not into it, a little bit immature, a little bit will go to the media with leaked stories about you. I think she just chooses the wrong guys. I really hope not, but only time will tell. And now it's time for the quick and dirty. Every week we bring you five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity news cycle that you might have missed. Zara, you are kicking it off this week. All right, let's do it. My first story of the week. Serena Williams is GQ's Woman of the Year. Fans ask, what's with the quotation marks? That is from the New York Times. Were you across this story? Yes, I read it and I have a different opinion as to what I would have if I just read the headline. Agree. So, context. Serena Williams was on the cover of GQ named their Woman of the Year. Now, GQ is obviously a men's magazine, so they crossed out man, so they had Man of the Year, and they crossed out man, and they put woman, but they put woman in quotation marks. Now, on first impressions, a lot of people found this problematic given how Serena and Venus have copped a lot of hate over their sort of sense of femininity or whatever it might be in the tennis world, um, that there have been appalling trans jokes made about her. And and a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon saying that GQ was tone deaf. Mm. However, you take this. However, the designer who actually wrote Woman on the cover in quotation marks has done plenty of work with Serena in the past, including designing her tennis outfits. And that's her style, that no matter what, she'll put quotation marks around something just as a bit of a trademark for her. Exactly. So, for example, on one of – it's quite witty, actually – on one of Serena's tennis outfits, she put quotation marks around the word logo, where a logo was supposed (laughs) to be. So this is just the artist's style of writing things. Quite a well-known style. Yeah, and GQ did come out and explain that. So I feel like it was a bit of a beat-up. However, I can totally see why people would have been immediately put off by those. I think without the context, for sure, but if there's anything we've learned in this kind of fast-paced digital world, it's that context is everything. Exactly. And Serena would have loved that artist if she's worked with her so many times. Serena would have absolutely approved that cover. So I think it's just another lesson again in before you jump on the hatred bandwagon. Do some reading. Take a breath. Do some thinking. Come back to it. Number two, truly bizarre Taylor Swift rumor finally confirmed from news.com.au. Okay, I have so much on this. So do I, and I've come almost full circle on it. So the truly bizarre Taylor Swift rumor would be the one, of course, from last year. Or this year? Oh, last year, I think it was, when she went underground and didn't want the paparazzi to get a single photograph of her. So there was this rumor going around that Taylor Swift was traveling from her apartment outside in a massive suitcase luggage box thing by her security guards who would then put the luggage in the car and she would travel to and from meetings, events, whatever, in a massive suitcase. It is an absurdly large suitcase that I'm not sure... would suit any purpose apart from human transportation. Yes, I agree. It was very weird. And obviously a lot of people saw this rumor last year and were like, "Mm, probably not true, probably a little bit too bizarre. However, Zayn Malik of One Direction fame and Gigi Hadid fame came out and said, no, that's true. Last year she was traveling around in a giant suitcase and nobody realized However, there's then another twist. (laughs) There is. So uh, in our Facebook group, by the way, which has been renamed, might we add? Shameless Podcast Community. That's it. Please don't go searching Shameless Celebrity Gossip anymore because we will not be there. We are Shameless Podcast Community. Somebody posted a blind item and we have spoken about blind items on the podcast before, but they are basically anonymous sort of celebrity riddles. Gossip tip-offs that don't name anyone for defamation reasons, really. They're very exciting little tidbits, I must admit. And someone in – there was a blind item that said that Taylor Swift has been planting false rumours about herself to certain people in her circle that she might not necessarily trust to see whether they do leak those stories. Yes, and this blind item was saying that one of those members was a member of an A-list boy band. Well, there you go. I do think it's interesting because Zayn Malik is in her circle given he dates Gigi Hadid and Gigi Hadid is friends with Taylor Swift. Anyway, a whole lot going on there. But I find that fascinating. I will keep my eye on that story and the blind items to come to see whether 
That is quite legit. I feel like we'll never know for sure. For some reason, I wouldn't put it past Zayn Malik to be one leaking celebrity stories. I I don't know why. I wouldn't put it past him either to be the one that's not entirely clued on to the fact he's being played. It yeah, just seems like a little like, bit slow. Seems like a tiny <laughs> bit of a dope. <laughs> I mean that in the nicest possible way, and I'm not sure that can come across in the nicest possible way. Alas, I'm going to move on to my third story. Yeah, I don't think we need to worry about Zayn Malik listening to the Shameless podcast. Definitely not. <laughs> Channing Tatum's girlfriend reveals secret health battle. That is from Nine News. People, we put this on our Instagram and corrected the headline for Nine News. You're so welcome, Nine News. Sassy. And people thought that we were joking and that this was a fake headline. This actually appeared. I'll repeat it again. Channing Tatum's girlfriend reveals secret health battle. That girlfriend is Jessie J, a.k.a. the musician who has sold over 20 million singles. Why don't you sing one? No. (laughs) Come on. You've heard me sing before. It's not pretty. No, it's true. What the hell? Why are we defining her by a boyfriend that she's had for all of two seconds when she's been in the public eye for about a decade? The most interesting part about this is that I don't know how many people are necessarily across the fact they're even dating. So it's not a clever headline because we're not really across that yet. And so we don't know who they're talking about. Smarter to just say Jesse J. Maybe they were, sorry, thinking on the go. <laughs> how we always do this podcast, go for it. Um, maybe they were trying to do a bit of a clickbaity thing because the photo of Jesse J looked a little bit like Jenna Duan, which is Channing Tatum's ex-wife. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they were trying to prey on intrigue. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think it's just absolute bullshit. Her name is Jessie J. Her name is not Channing Tatum's girlfriend. Do, do you, her reminds... name, her full name is not Jessie J. No, that's her public name, of though. Of course, I'm kidding. Don't try and pull me up on this. I'm just joking around. Anyway, yeah. Channel 9, that is a crappy headline and you can do better next time. Thanks. Great work, Michelle. Tell them what you think. I'm sure they're listening. <laughs> Number four, Swedish Instagram model insists she's not pretending to be black. That is from The Cut. You got a bit in trouble from our own listeners about this I this week. I did, but I have to say everybody kind of came around by the end of that discussion. I put this link in our Facebook group, Shameless Podcast Community. <laughs> We're gonna be plug, 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 plug. And I didn't put enough nuance around the link. All I put in there is, holy hell, this is so messed up, and then jumped off my phone, which was probably my biggest mistake. The story is about a Swedish uh, brunette Instagram model who covers herself in so much fake tan that she does appear to be black. She, Her hair, her makeup, her clothing, her mannerisms, every way that she goes about approaching Instagram makes her seem like a woman of colour when she is not. Yeah. Now, it's a really hard story to read and consume because I think a lot of people immediately read that and thought, well, I wear fake tan. I'm not appropriating a culture. I wear fake tan too. In fact, I'm wearing probably too much of it right now. But the idea behind the story was very interesting. This idea of black fishing. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. I hadn't heard of it until I had read this story, but it is basically people on Instagram or social media trying to appropriate black culture by hair, clothes, accessories, skin tone. But then the idea is, of course, they are able to strip all that back and be white when they want to be, which is privilege in and of itself. Yeah, well, this is the problem with appropriating black culture is that we say as two white people. Of course, we say this is two white people, but this is what I believe it to be. I'm more than willing to be educated on this further because I think it's a really important topic. The way I interpret it is that if you are white and you're pretending to be black, you are taking advantage of a skin color that has been fetishized and yep. sexualized. And I think we do that to a lot of black women and women of color against their will. You're taking all of the desirable Instagram worthy aspects of a certain culture. You're profiting off them for your own gain. However, you are still also profiting off the fact that you can remove the fake tan Mm. and you can keep your last name and you can have all of the things that give you privilege as a white woman when people in the black community can't do that. And it's very irresponsible for us to go around, I think, as white women and tell women of colour what they can and can't be offended by. Well, that's what I found most interesting on that thread. And I have to say that thread got hundreds of comments by the end of it. And most people did kind of understand when there were a lot of women of colour coming in and jumping in and there was quite a big debate going on that we cannot possibly, as white women and you and I, say what is appropriate and what is not. And also it's not a helpful debate for us to fixate on the right amount of fake tan because that is absolutely not the point. And I think that's that's where a lot of people got caught up with this story. It's not about the fake tan. It's about packaging yourself in a certain way and profiting off a culture that has been marginalized for so many years and centuries. I don't think it's up to anyone as a white woman to decide what they can and can't be offended about. It's more productive to actually listen 
and try and come from a place of understanding as to why they might have a different experience and different viewpoint to us. It is something I'm going to be looking out for on Instagram more now as well. Um, because it's something I had never heard of. I would recommend reading that short and sharp piece from The Cut just to get a sense of the story, though, for sure. It's something the Kardashians have been accused of yeah. numerous times, particularly Kim and Khloe Kardashian, so potentially look into that too. Yeah, exactly. And my last story, Zoe Kravitz claims Lily Allen attacked her with a kiss following memoir anecdote from News.com. I have no idea what this story is. This was really strange. So Lily Allen obviously wrote a memoir because it's all anyone's been talking about for the last couple of months, and she wrote an anecdote in that memoir saying that Zoe and Lily had shared some sort of kiss when they were on tour together years and years ago. And now Zoe Kravitz is coming out saying, well, that didn't really happen. She kind of attacked me with this kiss. And Zoe Kravitz has denigrated this book quite a lot, saying no one's reading it. It's super inappropriate for her to be having this anecdote when it didn't happen as she said it did, which I thought was very interesting. This is quite a controversial book, it seems. Mm, She did speak about sleeping with someone's husband on a plane as well, from memory. Just a few explosive claims in there maybe we should actually read that book <laughs> i can't Why? i just don't have i don't have the energy to give to memoirs right now i know this sounds a little bit ridiculous but i do find memoirs quite self-indulgent they are i can't wait for the day that you write your memoir and i i play you this audio can you imagine what would i say <laughs> it's true <laughs> grew up in the suburbs <laughs> literally the most <laughs> interesting thing about me is i put peanut butter and chocolate in my oats cannot believe that got another plug <laughs> That is all for the quick and dirty today. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's the quote that received cheers and jeers in equal measure. While receiving her award for GQ magazine's International Woman of the Year, Emily Ratajkowski announced, it's about pushing boundaries. It's about being in a string bikini on the beach and at a protest. Emrata, as she refers to herself, is a little bit of a tricky one to place. On one hand, she's gyrating in Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines music video or covering her naked body in spaghetti. On the other, she's a strong and fearless feminist who has never shied away from her political opinions. In their explanation of her award, GQ's editors explained, there's no reason that a woman can't find self-empowerment in defining and owning the expression of her sexuality and body. Zara, how do you feel about Emily's award and her speech? I think there's absolutely no reason why she can't win this award. There's absolutely no reason why she can't give a speech like that. And it's very funny how people are perceiving that one quote. I know we just had a conversation about it then, that idea it's about being in a string bikini on a beach and at a protest. Yeah, we had to pause the recording to battle it out as to what we think that might mean. Which I think is interesting in and of itself in that we can't quite decipher the direct meaning. Is she saying that you can be in a string bikini at a protest or it's about both being at a beach in a string bikini and then going to a protest too and that being twofold? It could mean either. Who knows? 100%. I like this to a point. I, I am very careful before we start to make it seem like feminism needs a gatekeeper and that we need to sort of welcome people into the club or kick people out. That being said, I still think it's important for us to sort of critically analyse brands of feminism, particularly when it's someone as famous as Emrata who spruiks the feminist narrative all the time. I've been vacillating on how I feel about this Mm. all week since it came out. I am so confused and I do want to go through the pros in my head first. So on some level... She's making feminism more palatable for men. And I, before you jump in, that is not necessarily all great mm. and it's not all bad either. I think it mm. provides an alternative to the political lesbian slash burning my bra idea that a lot of men get in their head. As soon as you say the word feminist, they immediately jump to the man hater, di- man hater, the most divisive brand of feminist possible. So it's good that someone in the mainstream is using the word feminist openly in her Instagram bio, in almost every speech she gives, in almost every appearance she does. She mentions that she's a feminist. And I think it's great that we can have that word out there and really try to destigmatize it so that men or even other women who have internalized some level of misogyny can stop thinking, oh, feminism is that gross word that describes people who hate men, like we just said. However, needing to make women's opinions and political opinions particularly sexy or needing to make them attractive aesthetically is problematic. It doesn't mean that what Emrata is doing is a step backwards. I'm just not sure if what Emrata is doing is a step forwards. 
I think I agree with much of that. However, I don't know if she's changing the definition of what feminism is because I still think men hold this idea of a true hardcore feminist as that burning my bra, hating men, being angry all the time and just sitting in my anger all the time. For a lot of men, it's not necessarily making the term more mainstream but separating a kind of feminist. Either you're a hardcore one or you're a sexy emrata one who's a cool feminist. At least it provides an alternative though. Well, does it? Well, I don't yeah, know it does because otherwise they're just thinking, oh, all all feminists hate men when that's not the case. But I think the kind of feminism that we're about to talk about, the one that profit off sexy patriarchal ideas about what it means to be beautiful and taking your clothes off, that's not that helpful. And if that's what men think feminism is, then they were not going to go anywhere. Mm. So I understand I'm in so many minds about it. I understand the idea that that she's making the word mainstream, but even still, do we want it to be mainstream if that's what it means? Well, here's the thing, right? At least Emrata stands for something. At least she's coming out and speaking about the Kavanaugh trial. At least she's coming out and talking about uh, reproductive rights, right? So she's standing for something important. The alternative is a world filled with Kardashians who don't say much at all, apart from things that they profit from. At least Emrata is trying. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, I don't associate with her brand of feminism and I don't get her because, yeah, maybe I don't get it. However, I think she's doing a bloody good job compared to the vast majority of women in the public eye right now. No, that's very true. And I think it should be said that she did protest Kavanaugh's appointment and she did get locked up for a matter of hours. I mean, some people did accuse her and Amy Schumer of that being a little bit of a publicity stunt, but I don't care because if two women fighting for that is going to go viral, I'm very happy for it too. I agree with you too in that it's really good to see people standing for something. However, I also don't know if everything has to be feminist, even if it's good marketing. I think what she does is in talking about feminism in every conversation and every campaign that she's ever done. In fact, she was the face, she was recently named the face of a hair care brand. And in an interview with Elle, I thought this was very interesting when she was talking about that ambassadorship. Feminism is about the choices we make and the freedom we have to make personal choices without judgment or retribution. For some people, their hair isn't important to them and that's totally a respectful stance. I would never judge someone who feels that way. I'm just not sure how we manage to get feminism into a conversation about being a hair care ambassador. Yeah, no, that's weird. And so I don't think that everything has to be feminist. And I think that's very important for young women to listen to. We would be exhausted if every single thing we ever had to do was in the name of feminism. I was having a conversation at work the other day about someone asked me if I would ever propose to my boyfriend or partner, whoever I was dating when that time came. And I remember turning around looking and said, honestly, I wouldn't do it. And I had not a lot to explain for it other than that's what he has been told he has meant to do. That's his job. <laughs> no, but it's this idea, well, he's been told forever. This is kind of the one thing that he's responsible for and that's his domain and what he's expected to do and who am I to take that away from him? That's not very feminist at all, but I'm too exhausted to fight it. Well, it's the same as me. I have so many things that I do and think in my life where I'm like, that's not very feminist to me. For example, I like the fact that Mitch is taller than me. Don't know why. Don't know why I've always wanted to date a taller guy. Or like he's not older than me, actually. He's a couple months younger. However, I would potentially find it odd if I was dating a younger guy. Whereas younger women date older men all the time. I like that my boyfriend can fix things. <laughs> he fixes everything. He fixes my problems. He fixes the when my car wheel falls off. And that is terrible. But all I'm doing is saying, I don't think... Everything we do has to be justified in a feminist lens so well as we're self-aware about it. As well as I can be like, yeah, well, it's pretty shit that I've been taught how to change a tyre about seven times in my life and I've never really listened because I've always just assumed he'll be there to fix it. That's not good, but as long as we're self-aware about that. Yeah. I think we all have conflicting ideals of what it means to be feminist anyway. And I think we do lose traction when we spend so much time in fighting with other feminists oh, yeah. about what feminism really is. Isn't that when, what we're doing right now? <laughs> when really... Our time would all be better spent actually fighting oppression that means only what? Like a quarter of people on ASX 200 boards are women. That's the issue. What M. Rada does on Instagram isn't a massive issue. I've, I'm not saying we can't critique it. I think it's great that we can critique it. What I'm saying is that I don't think it's a very productive use of time for the internet to be obsessed with whether or not M. Rada is a good feminist because who cares? At least she's doing something with her platform. And I th also think there's a huge gaping difference between what is feminist and what is empowering. 
This is, I think, the biggest issue I have. Not that she, not her particular brand of feminism, because I agree with what you say. At the end of the day, we're all fighting the same fight. What I do kind of have an issue with is how whenever now a woman says something is empowering, we're sort of compelled to believe it must be empowering and feminist at the same time. I think there's a very important distinction between being empowered and feeling empowered and being a feminist. For example, Michelle, is taking your clothes off and giving the mirror, the bird, empowering and feminist? No. It might be your version of empowering. And when I say that, I'm obviously talking about that very famous image of Emrata and Kim Kardashian uh, in someone's bathroom doing that. You can say that's empowering, but don't say that's inherently feminist because taking your clothes off and looking sexy in a very general, conventional, beautiful way is playing into what the patriarchy thinks is beautiful and that's why your clothes are off. Yeah, exactly. Often what's empowering at an individual level is what actually sets us back a little bit with feminism. So it's fine if you feel empowered by taking your clothes off and thrusting whatever body part you like at a camera and posting that and getting rewarded by men for that. That is totally fine. However, calling that feminism is just a lie. That's not feminism because you're actually, exactly as you said, promoting an ideal that was built by men to oppress you. I I think we've accidentally conflated feeling sexy for feeling empowered for being feminist. And somewhere along the way, we've got to break that up. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Like, you don't... The whole thing about oppression and the oppression of women is that our value lies in how sexy we are and how attractive we are. And that's what we're trying to break, that we're worth so much more than our bodies and what we look like. So when we continually put ourselves out there and be like, yeah, but look, I'm empowered. I'm putting my six pack on Instagram. Do that if you want, but don't pretend that you're being feminist because you're not. You're just putting out what you know will be rewarded by a system that you are the main beneficiary of. Do you think it's a jealousy thing as well, this movement of wanting to critique Embrata's feminist stances? Yeah, uh, maybe. I think it's just women being frustrated, particularly Emrata's spoken a lot about body positivity before, and I'm not an overweight woman or a curvy woman. However, I can understand why that would be incredibly frustrating because it seems like Emrata was born in the perfect body according to our societal standards. So to come out and be like, guys, love your body, you you just think, well, yeah, it's fucking easy for you. You look perfect and everyone thinks you're amazing. Of course you're going to love your body. What about the women who don't fit the ideal that was mm. built against them and is constantly telling them that they're wrong? I definitely think there's an element of jealousy and that might not go down well people might not like hearing that but I think we have an inherent habit of feeling jealous of the beautiful of the people who benefit from the system that the rest of us find ways to exist around which is this beauty ideal I think it's also about these women wanting to be political and for us saying well if you want to do that you want to say that that's fine but your actions are going to have to speak louder than your words and at the moment I think with Emrata her words speak louder than her actions it might even be that she in herself is very conflicted. A lot of her commercial appeal is in appealing to men. And she probably logs onto Instagram every day. Oh, sorry. Who logs onto Instagram? <laughs> Just turns on Instagram every day and knows the way she's going to be rewarded in likes, in relevancy, in dollars is to be as sexy and as hot as possible. She might have two things at once. She might be insecure to the point where she knows that if she stops posting that, her career might go down the drain. She also knows that she's a feminist and deep down she probably sees her own behavior as problematic. Well, then that's, I think that's a really good point. And what a conversation we don't have enough is sort of the pragmatism behind maybe having to compromise to keep a platform. Maybe that's her idea. She thinks, well, if I'm going to keep earning this money and being in the public eye, I'm going to have to do it by acting and modeling in a certain way, but I'm willing to compromise in order to maintain that platform and say what I want to say. Absolutely. And how long ago was the Blurred Lines video? It was years ago. Three years ago. Not that long ago. It's still years ago. You can change so much, especially in your 20s as a woman. You can change so much in what you actually believe. And I look back on things that I did three years ago and I I wouldn't do that again. And that's not me now. However, she's built a career off that one video where she was topless and she was gyrating on Robin Thicke. Maybe she's gotten herself into the situation where she can't just pivot 360 now and stop posting all that stuff. She's been rewarded for the same behavior for so long. It would be really tricky to then... Yeah, but I can understand people being a bit conflicted about that themselves, saying you can't necessarily denigrate a system that's lifted you up, which is you can't criticize this video that gave you your entire career, however problematic that might be. 
I do want to flag, though, we said that she's very, she was very good when it came to protesting the Kavanaugh hearings. She does do a lot of good work with Planned Parenthood, which I think we should mention too, because I think that's stuff that is inflicting real and meaningful change in the US at a time when it couldn't be more important. Mm-hmm. I, like I said at the very start, I'm very conflicted about this idea about being a gatekeeper for feminism, but also being a critical analyst of the kinds of feminism that people want to sell and make money off. Yeah, the marketing aspect is problematic. However, I do think it's a good thing that GQ has a almost 100% male audience, I'm sure, very mainstream publication, and they are seeing the word feminist used in a non-derogatory way. And I think overall, that's probably a good thing. This week, writer Harling Ross wrote a searing piece for Man Repeller on the pressure for young people to make use of their weekends. The fact that I like Mondays more than Sundays might be the most inflammatory thing about me, she wrote. It's a blatant betrayal of social media code, a violation against the social media enforced conduct manual where in weeks, particularly the beginnings of them, are maligned and weekends are worshipped like the leader of a religious cult. Mish, how did you feel about the piece and the broader idea that more than ever young people are feeling the pressure to make use of their time and document that on social media? Well, first of all, I I just want to read out that first quote again because this is just me. The fact that I like Mondays more than Sundays might be the most inflammatory thing about me. Mm. That just spoke to me, not even on a spiritual level, on a cellular level. Do you prefer Mondays than Sundays? Uh, I just don't see a difference between the weekdays and the weekends. And I think I, I do feel pressure on the weekends to fill them with stuff and to be social and active and out there. However... I'm, the older I get, the more exhausted I feel. I don't want to finish a weekend feeling exhausted and depleted because I've been out partying or out drinking, whatever. The older I get, the more I just want to lie down. I kind of think that that thing you just said where you said I don't really see the difference between weekdays and weekends might actually be the key to happiness. And I know that that's quite a Ooh, broad I've achieved it. general statement. But I've thought about this for a while because – I'm very, I try to be as self-aware as I possibly can in what gets me down and how to sort of lift me out of holes. And I realized perhaps at the start of this year that my whole life was hinging on whether what day of the week it was. I was crawling to Fridays and then Fridays would come and I was so excited for the weekends, but for some reason they sort of never lived up to the expectation that you had to them. And then you went back to week and I sort of fell into this self-imposed you know, disappointment that it was Monday again. Like a little rut. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the most important thing I've done for self-preservation or self-care is being able to invest in every day of the week equally because I think then you're not living a life in this kind of cycle, which is why this piece really spoke to me too because I think there's so much pressure now to make use of your weekends and not just make use of it but make sure they are. It's like these need to be the most social, exciting weekends ever and sometimes – All we want to do is sit inside. In fact, generally, a lot of studies show that we are the laziest generation of all. Yeah, I think it's interesting when people always say how quickly the year goes and how quickly each week goes and that we're almost at Christmas. Potentially, those are the people who really focus on that cycle. Mm. So every cycle that you're down, it's like another week down. Whereas since going to freelancing and working for myself, I've realized that I don't follow a typical working week. I don't work Monday to Friday anymore. I do a bit of work on every single day. It's very rare for me to have a full day off work. I'm looking forward to a week off now. But it's interesting because I think moving away from that nine to five cycle has been really good for me, actually. And it's meant that every day I have a bit of me time and have a bit of relaxation. And I don't worry if I'm going to have a drink on a Wednesday night. I don't worry about the next day. But that is a privilege. Of course, a lot of people don't. That's what I was about to say. It's a huge privilege to be able to do that. But I don't think that you can have this attitude exclusively working freelance because I work full time at the moment and I'm doing this sort of on the side. So free time is not a huge commodity I know much about. However, I think it was really important for me to find that mentality despite the nine to five job. And it's a very hard thing to do. But I found filling my weeknights was one of the most important things I could do socially for my mental health. I I loved this concept of weekend worship that Harling talks about, the unique pressure that you probably don't miss that comes with turning up to work on a Monday and someone asking you what you did on the weekend. And it's happened to me the last few weeks. And I don't even know where to start because I think I have no idea what I did. I mean, yeah, I, I might have gone out for dinner with my friends one night 
and I'm not really sure. I worked the rest of the weekend or I'm not sure what I did. But there is this unique pressure to sort of perform outside the workplace and have a life outside the workplace when in reality a lot of us don't have a life outside the workplace worthy of you know, bustling conversation. Well, it's also a lot of pressure when you get asked on a Thursday leading into a weekend. What are you doing? Or a Friday. What are you doing this weekend? You're like, fuck, what am I doing apart from going to my like cousin's first birthday yeah. or something utterly uninteresting? I do think part of it comes into the fact that now our work bleeds into every hour of the day. So maybe in the past when people worked just the nine to five, they didn't put as much emphasis on the weekend because you'd leave the office and you'd have that downtime at night or you'd have the downtime in the morning before everyone woke up. However, now we're working really 7am till about 10pm because we're constantly switched on to our emails. Mm. We're constantly locked in, particularly if you're in a digital sphere that you're working in, which the vast majority of us would be now. Maybe it's a feeling that the weekend is the only quarantined and sacred space of the entire week because you can't, some people can't just switch off from their work at 5pm on Mm. a Thursday night. That time isn't sacred. They still feel like they're switched on. So the moment to switch off and let loose is suddenly amplified and magnified in their mind. I feel like weekends are becoming so performative when they do play out on social media. And the one thing I think often when I'm scrolling through social media, particularly on the weekend, is how people afford it. Like living a life that exists on social media on the weekend. You might be going out for dinner and drinks and all I can actually think is, I'm pretty good with money and I earn okay money, but if I lived like this every day, I'd be dead broke. The money aspect is probably the biggest aspect of it for me. Yeah. That I love going, I love seeing friends, but to be honest, what's your, what's your ideal Saturday night now? It would be going out for dinner and drinks. Exactly the same. Whereas if you asked me two years ago, it would be going clubbing, which involves buying a new dress. I'm too tired. <laughs> spending all, all, spending all this money on drinks, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the money involved in having a jam-packed weekend, going to brunches, going to dinners, buying drinks. Feeling the space in an Instagram-worthy way is the most expensive thing that we don't talk about. Absolutely. And I just can't afford it. I want to save for an apartment. Like, I know that sounds so boring. I sound like such a nana in this segment, but I think I'm 24 now and I'm very different with how I would have spent my weekends two years ago. Totally. I feel a bit conflicted and I have kind of all year about how I actually spend my weekends. I despair when I wake up feeling great on a Sunday morning because I am looking at the Instagram stuff that went on the night before and I think far out, I'm wasting my 20s. Like, what am I doing? And then I despair when I drink myself into a state and wake up feeling terrible on Sunday. And I think, what am I doing with my life? Why have I just wasted an entire day? I've definitely experienced recently a little bit of resentment towards me that I have a long-term boyfriend and I'm not really into that nighttime scene anymore, particularly uh, family or maybe like distant friends or even someone that you meet. It's almost like a shame. It's like, oh, what a shame that you live with your boyfriend at such a young age. You've been together since you were in your early 20s. What a shame. You're so happy. (laughs) It's kind of... It's kind of like, oh, you're wasting your 20s. When yeah. no, I couldn't I couldn't decide when I was going to meet my boyfriend and decide that we were going to live together and so on and so forth. It's this attitude towards people who get into relationships early. It's like, oh, you've wasted the best years of your life. But what's to say getting pissed on Saturday night and not remembering a thing is the best year of your life? I mean, you don't remember it, so how do you even know? Also, my boyfriend seen me get drunk many a time. The idea that you, when you get a boyfriend, you can't have fun is pretty close-minded. I think I just, I actually, it's funny this year. I feel like our years have, have followed a similar path probably because we work together um, in that it has been far less of a social year in a drinking sense than I had intended it to be. It just sort of played out like that because we started working so much and we launched this podcast and we were juggling jobs and you realize at a point something's got to give. And unfortunately riding off your Saturday nights is the first thing to go. And it's been st- funny and strange and interesting how my relationship with that social life has evolved because I'm not as stressed anymore. I mean, I still have kind of moments where I think maybe I should be FOMO. Maybe, maybe I should be making more of an effort to sort of make use of that time. And then the other part of me thinks, well, how could we possibly control this is the work that we had to do? How could we possibly control what was to happen and how your social life kind of changes. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. I'm not sure if it's that I've arrived at that because of work or if it's because of anxiety. Both, that I reckon, I you. feel like if I'm going to drink myself stupid, I'm not just writing myself off 
that next day. I am putting myself into the most disgusting mental state possible. And my anxiety just can't cope with it. My, my boyfriend has seen it too many times. My family have seen it too many times that the next day I'm, I'm so low. I'm so down. I'm so harsh on myself that I've just turned away from alcohol almost completely. I might have a couple of drinks now here and there and I'm fine. But as soon as I get to that tipsy or drunk state, I'm a write-off for the next day mentally. I'm my my own worst and harshest critic. I think for me, it's very interesting that you're not the anomaly. And to be honest, with my social life sort of shifting a little bit in the last 10 months changing, I'm not the anomaly either. Young people are going out less. And neurologist told the New York Post in 2016, cases of exhaustion among young people are on the rise. Going out is very expensive. I think a lot of us live further out of the city than our parents did. I think entertainment comes in so many more forms this day. We have phones, we have streaming services. Our ability to be stimulated isn't confined to drinking on a Saturday or being around our friends or having that weekend life that we would love to pretend we did on social media. That's a really good point. I also feel recognize the irony in this segment as well, because by the time this episode drops, I would have had like a weekend that probably lived on social media. (laughs) However, know that that's the anomaly too. Yeah, look, I'm going to be on holiday for the next week. Oh, you will too. You'll have like the most Instagram-worthy weekends or full week as well. such hypocrites. We are. Hey, I think that's all we've got time for today. I think it is. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 36. Before we go, I do want to flag that next week your episode will be dropping into your feed a little bit later than usual. I'm getting off a flight and basically driving straight to Zara's house to record the episode on Monday morning. It'll be Monday morning at some point. It'll be Monday morning at some point. We can't guarantee when. Believe us, we are pulling all the stops out to get this episode to you as soon as possible. So next week, if you don't see it at 6am in your feed, do not stress. It'll be there as soon as possible. It will. As always, if you love the show and you want to help us grow, you can do a few things. You can click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find our show every week, or you can rate and review, ideally with not less than five stars. Only five stars, thanks. Correct. That's all we'll accept. Uh, yeah, join our Facebook group. It's called Shameless Podcast Community Now. We're going to have to go back through 35 episodes and remove shameless celebrity gossip because it's know. not that anymore. No, it's Shameless Podcast Community. And as always, you can find us on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. That's all for this week. We will speak to you, speak to you, chat to you, be in your ears. Oh, wow. I'm just going to let you go. Don't Keep do going. <laughs> Give us more. <laughs> Next week, some point on Monday morning, but we promise we'll be there. I'll be a little bit more tanned. Oh, true. They won't see that, though. No. I'll let you guys know about it, though. All right. Bye. <laughs> see you guys next week. <laughs> Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.